If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, if you know me at all, you have probably heard me say that Jonah is one of my favorite books of the Bible. There's a few reasons for that. Um, One of the reasons that I like Jonah so much is I really believe that Jonah, as a book of Scripture, talking about the prophet of Jonah and the ministry that God called him to and, and the way that he responded is a great example of the inspiration of Scripture. Because if somebody was writing the book of Jonah and they were going to try to make something up, they certainly wouldn't have written Jonah the way that it was written. I just got to say. Nobody's going to make themselves the main character of a book, and then by the time that you're done, you're the worst-looking character in the entire story. Most people don't do that. Not if you're going to try to convince somebody of something that you want them to believe. That's not the way you're going to do it. But you know, Jonah has so much in it for us. There are those that really kind of try to pick apart Jonah. I have a a news article that I'm not going to read this week, but one of the weeks in in the course of studying through Jonah, we're going to, I'm going to read it. One of the big criticisms of Jonah is, you know, that Jonah was swallowed up by a giant fish and how ridiculous is that? And that would never happen. I'm going to read you a story from New England from last summer of that very thing. I'm not going to do it today, so you have to come back now and hear that news article. But before we think it's too fantastic, these things have actually happened, and we actually have documentation, not just from Scripture. So it's not so fantastic um, that we just dispel it. But before we really get into the meat and, 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 uh, of, of Jonah, I just want to say that the reason why I believe that Jonah is an inspired book of Scripture and that Jonah is a real character and the events of Jonah really happened is because if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Because Jesus actually cites Jonah in Matthew 12, 39 to 41 and Luke eleven twenty nine to 32. Jesus spoke of Jonah being in the fish and preaching in Jonah And he talked about these things as real events. Not only that, but he actually talks about the fact that the men of, or the people of Nineveh will actually condemn those in Israel in Jesus' day because when the message of repentance was preached to the Ninevites, they responded to it and repented of their sin. And yet in Jesus' day, the children of Israel by and large were not willing to repent of their sin when they were confronted with it. And Jesus used the events of Jonah to condemn the children of Israel in his day for their hard-heartedness. That in and of itself right there lends credibility to the book of Jonah as far as I'm concerned. And we're going to work from that perspective today. We're going to read just the first few verses of Jonah I was initially going to look at doing maybe a chapter a week for the next four weeks, but I don't think that's actually going to happen, or we wouldn't do we would be doing a disservice to the book of Jonah. And so, we're going to start right in to Jonah one, 
verse 1 through 5. That's all we're going to get to, I think, today. So read with me, and then we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into Jonah and the people of Nineveh. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, and he went down into it with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the vessel and stretched out and had fallen into a deep sleep. So that's where we're going to pause this morning. It's as far as we're going to go, because there are three things from just those three verses that I want to highlight today. But let's start in a word of prayer as we seek God's face this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Jonah. I thank you for what we can learn from Jonah even today in 2022. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts by your word, that you would convict us of sin if that's what needs to be done today. If we need to be reassured of your grace, then I pray that we would be reassured of that today. God, if there's someone here today who's running from you, that I pray that they would be halted where they are and that they would realize that running from you is absolutely futile. So God, I pray that you just be with the next several minutes as we look into your word in Christ's name. Amen. I entitled my message, The Wrong Way Prophet. I stole that from somebody that I was reading from. Nothing's really of my own, just so you know. But then I got thinking as I was reading through these verses that really the better, better thing to say, the better title for this message would be Sinful People and a Self-Righteous Prophet. Because that's really who we're dealing with here. Right off the bat, we're introduced to the people of Nineveh and we're introduced to the prophet Jonah. And what we know right off the bat about the people of Nineveh is that they're a sinful people. And right off the bat, we begin to see that Jonah is a self-righteous prophet. Now, we'll see that as that goes through the book of Jonah, but we get a glimpse of Jonah being a self-righteous prophet right off the bat in this particular passage. Just so you know, there's one other instance where Jonah the prophet is mentioned. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, he's mentioned by name. He served as a prophet during the time of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. I'm not going to get into all the history of it, but by this point, the nation of Israel... So under Saul and David and Solomon was a united kingdom. So it was the entire kingdom of Israel. Judah and Israel together, it was one nation, one kingdom. 
But by the time Jonah comes on the scene, this is a divided kingdom. There's the nation of Judah in the south and the nation of Israel in the north. And by and large, the kings of Judah were generally godly kings. There were more godly kings and ungodly kings in Judah. And in the nation of Israel, there were only ungodly kings. They didn't have a godly king after the, the, the nation broke apart. And so Jeroboam II was reigning. At this point, the nation of Assyria, Assyria had kind of dwindled in its uh, influence and its impact in the region. And during that time, Jonah had actually prophesied to the king that the nation of Israel would begin to enlarge or reestablish its northern border that the Assyrians had started to chip away on. And that, in fact, was so. Under Jeroboam II, he was able to reestablish some of the nor nor northern boundaries and they regained some of their territory. That's, that's as far as we get with Jonah. Little brief excerpt in 2 Kings chapter 14. And then we have Jonah mentioned here. And so, if we were to look at that, we would say, well, what we know about Jonah is this, that he was a prophet, that God spoke to him, that as God spoke to him, at least when it came to the nation of Israel, he relayed that message from God to the king and that it was completely accurate. You could argue that he was faithful in doing so. And then you have God come to Jonah and tell him what to do next. And then you see a very different response from the prophet. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And what does he do? In verse 3 it says, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish. Just, I'm not, I don't have any maps, but just think of geography for a second. Okay? So I'm going to turn my back to you so I can kind of visualize where, where we are here. Okay? If this was the nation of Israel where my hand is, then Nineveh would have been way up here and Tarshish would have been way over here. You couldn't get a farther place in the known world from Nineveh, really, for Jonah than Tarshish. He was not being faithful to God. He wasn't being obedient to God. It was God says, go here, and he's like, I'm going to go the totally opposite direction. Not interested. And so we have the series title running from God because that's exactly what Jonah is trying to do. Now, if you're a Christian in this room and you know your Bible at all, you're already thinking through the absurdity of that. I would argue that Jonah even knew the absurdity of that, and yet he did it anyway. What do we know about the nation of Assyria? Why would Jonah not want to go to the, the Ninevites. Why would, why would that even be an issue? I mean, he was a prophet of God. If God told him to do something, why would he not just do it? Well, according to my Holman study notes, Nineveh was a major city in the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians were, and I'm going to quote, a cruel and warlike people who were longtime enemies of Israel. Assyrian artwork emphasizes war, including scenes of execution, impalement, flaying of skin off of prisoners, and beheadings. This was their culture. 
One of the big things, big differences between the Assyrians when they came into a territory and they ransacked it and they, they looted it and they took prisoners, the big difference between the Assyrians and the, and the Babylonians was this, and you can see this actually by the way that the Babylonians dealt with things in the book of Daniel. The Assyrians, when they took captives, if they didn't just kill the captives outright, when they brought them back to their territory, would literally separate them the, the prisoners and especially family members and they would scatter them among their empire. So if they took a family, they would separate husband and wife, parents and children, and they would make sure that those individuals never saw each other ever again. When the Babylonians came in, the Babylonians had a very different approach. And you see that a little bit in, in the story of Daniel. They would actually keep people together, but then they would begin to educate them in their culture. And they would treat them reasonably well in their empire and help them kind of get established in their empire, and then they would indoctrinate them in their empire so they wouldn't want to leave, and they wouldn't want to rebel. Two vastly different approaches, and certainly for the Jewish people, the Jewish people did not like the Assyrians at all. And Nineveh an, and Jonah is an example of, a, of an Israelite who, when it came to the Assyrians, couldn't stand them. Didn't believe, didn't feel that they were worthy of him to go and preach the message that God told him to preach to them. Even though, if you really think about it, the message that Jonah was going to preach, you would think that maybe he would be a little bit take a little bit of satisfaction in this. He gets to go and preach against the sin of the Ninevites. Go and say, hey, God's judgment is on you guys. You'd almost think that he was maybe, he'd be a little bit excited to be able to share that message with them. And yet God comes to Jonah and he says, do something. And Jonah says, no. I would argue it's because Jonah is a self-righteous prophet. See, he didn't believe that the Ninevites deserved to hear the message of repentance that God was giving to him to share with them. His dislike of the, the Assyrians, his hatred for the Assyrians meant that he wasn't willing to go and share God's message with them. I wonder if we have that same attitude sometimes. I was reading recently, I came across uh, the story of an individual, and I started reading about them. The individual's name was Carla Faye Tucker. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of her in this room before, but she was a U.S. citizen who was executed in 1998 because she brutally murdered two people in Texas after a botched robbery. She actually took a pickaxe to them, which is kind of brutal. She was the first woman to be executed in the U.S. since 1984, and she was the first executed in Texas since 1863. So you can tell that her crime was such, it was so heinous that, one, it warranted the death penalty, and it was, she was really the first woman for 100 years in the state of Texas to be executed. 
when you hear of her story and you read about her story, and I'm thinking through that as I'm, as I'm reading her story, I'm going, wow, like, as a human being, you listen to those kinds of crimes or you read about those kind of crimes and you're saying, that person's an evil person. Does that person really deserve any sort of mercy or grace? I mean, look what they did. It was heinous. And sometimes we can have these feelings of self-righteousness sometimes, and we look at something like that and say, well, I'm not like that. I mean, I've never done anything like that. I've never even thought about anything like that. How could somebody be like that? How can somebody do something like that? We can look around sometimes and we can see the overt sin of somebody and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. I'm not going to talk to them about Christ. They're, 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 they're too far gone. They're too sinful. Their lifestyle is something that I don't agree with at all. And God might be tugging on our heart as a believer to go and talk to that person about Christ. No, nah, no, I'm not interested struggling too much with the way that they're living or the way that they're thinking or the way that they're responding or what they've done. We can struggle ourselves with self-righteousness. I've had a few conversations recently of individuals who were very quick to point out the sin of somebody else. And in that conversation, kind of getting a little high and mighty about where they're at in their life versus where that other person's at in their life and saying, I, I don't agree with that. They shouldn't be here. They shouldn't be doing that. I, we shouldn't be. Because in that moment, it's looking about how well I'm doing and looking at how poorly that person's doing and we're falling into self-righteousness. And here we have sinful people, but we have a self-righteous prophet who's unwilling to go and tell them the message that God's got for them and is willing to be disobedient instead of obedient to God. So the first thing that I want us to see from this particular passage is first that we cannot hide our sin from God. None of us can hide our sin from God. If you look at this passage, it says right off the bat, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. He says, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their sin has come up before me. God was fully aware of the sin of this group of people. See, our sin cannot be hidden from God. In fact, the prophet Amos in Amos 5.12 says this, for I know your crimes. He was actually talking to the children of Israel here. He was actually talking to the kingdom of Israel. So before the Israelites... Jonah being one of them can get on their pedestal and say, I can't believe how wicked the Ninevites are. I can't believe how sinful those people are. God actually sends Amos to the children of Israel and says this, for I know your crimes are many and your sins are innumerable. They oppress the righteous. They take a bribe. They deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Guess what? The children of Israel, they struggle with sin too. And they couldn't hide it from God any better than the Ninevites could hide it from God. I want to read a couple other passages of Scripture that deal with this. In, in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, this is a warning 
that is given to the children of Israel by Moses. They were getting ready to go into the promised land. That was the plan. Moses starts giving them instructions. One of the instructions was is that the land that God had given the children of Israel, they were supposed to drive the inhabitants out. Why? So that the children of Israel wouldn't intermarry with those people. They wouldn't follow after their gods. The Canaanite gods where they sacrificed children to their gods where they were involved in sexual immorality in the, in the midst of their worship of their gods. God's like, I don't want you to have anything to do with those people. You need to get them out of the land. And there were a couple of tribes that said, look, we'll go and do that, but we want to settle on the other side of the Jordan. We'll go and help the rest of the tribes do their job, but when we're done, we want to actually settle on the other side of the Jordan, just outside the promised land. And Moses says this, he warns them that if they don't do it, this is what's going to happen. He says, but if you don't do this, you will certainly sin against the Lord. Be sure your sins will catch up with you or be sure your sins will find you out. I don't know about you, but growing up in a Christian home, hearing the word of God, that, that verse, I heard that a bunch of times from my parents. And it's true. Be sure your sin will find you out. See, we cannot hide our sin from God. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, Paul says this, What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we all, excuse me, we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. So it doesn't matter where, what ethnic group we're from, doesn't matter anything like that. It, he, when Paul says all, both Jews and Gentiles, he means all people are under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive, they, excuse me, deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What's Paul saying? That we can't hide our sin from God. And that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. See, here's the thing that, that, that Jonah was forgetting. As he was looking at the sinfulness of the Ninevites and how wicked they were, and I'm sure that he was totally agreeing with God when God says, hey, you need to go to Nineveh because they're a wicked people, and Jonah's like, they sure are. What Jonah was forgetting was that, you know what? In his sin, he was equally wicked. He was just as sinful as them. His sin may have been a little bit different in the way that it looked, but his sinfulness still separated him from a holy God. He still needed to be saved just like the Ninevites did. And he had had an opportunity to hear 
from God, the saving work of God, through the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that covenant that extended to us in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to come, and through Christ, all of the world would be blessed. And then as we follow that line and we see what Christ did on the cross, which we were remembering this morning through communion, Christ died on the cross for our sins. And if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our only means of salvation from that sin, we are made righteous with God. Paul says that. He says, but now, in verse 21 of chapter 3, but now, apart from the law, because we can't keep the law, the law, as it's written in Scripture, the Ten Commandments, even if you take the Ten Commandments and you look at that, just that little bit of the law, and you go down through you and I will both find that somewhere along the line we've broken at least one aspect of that law. And James tells us that if we kept the whole law and yet failed in one point, we're guilty of all of it. So the law just simply shows us that we cannot keep the law, we cannot save ourselves. And so we need Jesus, and Paul says that, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed attested by the law and the prophets, Jonah being one of them. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him, Christ, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him, Christ, a demon, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Christ. We all desperately need Christ to save us from our sin. That is the only way that we can be right before God. Jonah experienced that message. He had heard that message. He had the privilege of being able to share that message with the Ninevites, but you know what? Jonah's like, no, those people don't deserve it because they're too evil and wicked. And he had forgotten that he had been saved because he was evil and wicked and that he needed salvation, and he had a, a, an opportunity to experience that, and yet he was unwilling to tell anybody about it. See, right off the bat, we learn that we cannot hide our sin from God. Number two, we cannot run from God. Jonah tells us right off the bat that he tries to flee from God. It says in verse three, God, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. The word flee in the Hebrew really means to run away in a stealthy way. I want you to think through that for a second. If, if you know anything about what Scripture teaches about God, if, if God is completely transcendent, if he's eternal, if he's omnipotent, if he's omnipresent, if he's omniscient, as Scripture declares him to be, if he is God, he's got to be outside of his creation. Do you really think that Jonah is going to be able to accomplish the fleeing in a stealthy way from God? Hey, I'm just going to sneak out at nighttime and I'm going to go down to Joppa. I'm going to get on this boat and I'm going to hide inside of it. God will never know. 
just going to read one passage of scripture from Psalms. As the psalm writer reflects on God, this is what David says. Where can I escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And then he gets going. If I go up to hell, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I live in the eastern horizon or settle in the western limits, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold me. Now David's writing it from a positive perspective. He's taking comfort in the fact that he can't get anywhere where God's not. He finds that comforting. Pretty sure Jonah doesn't. If I say surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be my night, even the darkness is not dark for you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. It's just one excerpt from scripture that talks about the fact that, you know what, you and I cannot flee from God. And you may be here today And the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sin. No matter how small that sin is, you might be saying, well, look, I I might be guilty of telling a little white lie. Well, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that you shall not lie. Right there's a simple command from God that we've all violated. And if I've sinned in any way, shape, or form, I have no relationship with God. Scripture tells me I'm an enemy with God. And you may be here and God might be convicting you of your sin and you're like, no, I think I'm gonna try to run from that. I'm telling you right now, you just can't run away from God. God's gonna continue to bring that up. He's gonna continue to convict you of that. You're gonna be continually reminded of the fact that you need Jesus Christ as your savior. Christian, you might be here today and you're running from God. Maybe God's trying to, Maybe he's calling you to do something specific. Maybe there is somebody in your life that you can have a witness for Jesus Christ to, but you're saying, you know what, I, I, no, they're not worth it. I've, I see the way that they live their life. I, I don't condone that. I know that the Bible says that that's, that's something that's wrong. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go to them. They, they don't deserve it. Or maybe somebody's wronged you and you have developed this bitterness against them and they don't deserve to hear anything because of what they've done to me. And yet God's saying, no, you need to go to them. No, you need to go to them. You need to talk to them. You need to share Jesus with them. And you're going, no, not interested. You can keep on running from God all you want, but you're not gonna get away from them. Jonah tried to run from God, but there's no running from God. How do we know that? He pays the fare, he goes down, he gets into the, the boat, starts heading for Tarsus from the Lord's presence. But number four, we will be confronted with our sin. That's the third thing I want us to be reminded of. We will be confronted with our sin. Look at what happens here in verse four. It says, the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea And such a storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. Now, I'm not going to get into the next part. We're actually going to jump into that, Lord willing, next week. I just want you to see this. Jonah wasn't going to flee from God. It doesn't matter how hard he tried. And God was going to confront him with his sin. Just like God was sending Jonah to confront the Ninevites of their sin, God's got to deal with this in Jonah's life first and foremost. 
He brings up a, a storm on the sea so that he confronts Jonah in regards to his sin of disobeying God and fleeing from him. Now, God uses the storm. He uses the, the mariners on the ship to confront him. And as I was thinking about the times in Scripture and the times in my life where God has confronted me about my sin, I just jotted down four different things, four different ways that God might be confronting us right now. Number one, sometimes God uses lost people to confront us about our sin. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about how crazy that is that God could bring somebody who doesn't even believe in God, has no relationship with God, to confront us with our sin? Can I back that up? Sure. In Genesis chapter 20, verse 9, it says this, Then Abimelech, who was a Philistine, he was not a worshiper of God, called Abraham and said to him, what's going on? Why is he talking to Abraham? Because Abraham lied about the fact that Sarah was his wife. He said, no, she's my sister, so that they won't kill me and take her as their wife. So he's looking out for himself. And he lied to Abimelech. And God stopped Abimelech from doing anything wrong and sinful. And then Abimelech comes and he calls out Abraham for his sin. He says, what have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such an enormous, enormous guilt on me and on my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never have been done. That's some pretty bold statements right there. So there's a lost man confronting Abraham about his sin. Because God met with that Philistine king and said, you can't do this. You should not do this. If you do this, I'm going to judge you. And Abimelech turns around and says, Abraham, what are you doing, man? You've done something wrong here. Sometimes God uses a lost person. Sometimes God uses circumstances, like we see in Jonah. Brings a big storm on the sea, hitting that ship to bring Jonah to the point where he recognizes that he's done something that he shouldn't have done, that he's sinned against God. Sometimes God uses his word. In Acts chapter 9, we see this. And we are, if we're familiar with scripture at all, I'm sure that we're familiar with this passage of scripture. It says, now Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and requested letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found anyone, any man or woman belonging to the way, he might bring them as a prisoner to Jerusalem. And as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling on the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, Saul said. I am Jesus, the one who, who you are persecuting. And he replied, get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. This is Paul's conversion experience. He comes face to face with Jesus. He realizes who Jesus is. We discover that he confesses his sin, he repents of his sin, and he follows Christ, and Christ uses him in an absolutely incredible way to reach people for Christ. But you know what? He was confronted with Jesus. He was confronted with the word of God. Paul was a self-righteous man. He thought he had it all figured out from the Old Testament. He had such zeal that he was actually persecuting people who followed Jesus. 
thinking that he was doing the right thing and that they were doing the wrong thing. And Jesus stops them up and says, Saul, you're a sinner and you need to be saved. Saul believes in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we're confronted by the word of God. And lastly, sometimes we're confronted by a Christian person, another believer. And I want to read this to you because I appreciate how David responds here. It says, the Lord, so the Lord sent Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. Nathan was a follower of God to David. When he arrived, he said, he arrived, he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large flock and herds, and the poor man had nothing except one small ewe that he had bought. And he raised her, and she uh, grew up with him and with his children from his meager food she ate from his cup she would drink and in his arms she would sleep she was like a daughter to him now a traveler came to the rich man but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him instead he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for his guest and David was infuriated with the man, and he said, Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who, uh, di who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing, and he's shown no pity. He must pay for four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. Did David steal a sheep? No, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And had Bathsheba's husband killed to cover up his sin. And God raises up Nathan, a follower of God, to confront David about his sin. And when David was confronted by his sin, he was struck with the gravity of that sin, and he repented of his sin to God. David said in verse 13, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin, and you will not die, but because you have treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. And then Nathan went home. Some things that we need to keep in mind. Sometimes God brings Christian people into our lives to confront us with our sin. Our response should always be, no matter what God uses to confront us with our sin, our response should be the exact same as David. I have sinned against the Lord and that we repent of our sin. That might be repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus Christ to save you from your sin and having a personal relationship with God. Christian, that might be repenting of your sin and following God the way that he's instructing you to follow him. Are there consequences to our sin? Yes, there are. Those consequences might be small, might be ones that only we see. Those consequences might be huge that impact other people, like David's situation. Like Carla Faye Tucker's situation. You know, there are people that weren't too self-righteous to go and tell her about Jesus. I was reading this in a devotional book that I've been working through. It says, from death row to life row, this is her story when she was in prison. God-centered living always affects others. This is from a, a, a book called Experiencing God. Being certain God is always at work around you will affect your relationships with others. When Carla Faye Tucker was on death row in Gainesville Women's Prison, she became a Christian. Some faithful Christians approached her, shared the gospel with her. 
led her to faith and, tr and trust in Christ. Her life was changed. She began to teach other inmates on death row. So many came to know Christ as Savior. The women themselves renamed it Life Row because they came to know the true life in Christ. Eventually, Carla was executed for her crimes. Her testimony affected a nation and touched the world. Were there consequences to her sin? Yes, she was executed for her crimes. But she came to faith and trust in Christ and then she shared that with other people and many people came to Christ. All because there are people who are not too self-righteous to go to talk to somebody who committed a heinous murder and didn't look at her and say, hey, you know what, she doesn't deserve salvation. She doesn't deserve an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Christ could do in her life. Instead they said, you know what, this lady needs Jesus. No matter how heinous her crime was, she could be forgiven of her sins by Jesus Christ if she would trust him as her savior. And she did. My question for you is this, are you running from God? Are you here this morning and you know that you are a sinner and that you need Christ as your savior? Are you running from him or are you gonna come this morning and say, you know what, I am a sinner and I can't hide that from God? And that makes me an enemy of God that's gonna cause me to spend eternity apart from God in hell. But I'm gonna trust Christ as my savior today. Christian, are you running from God because you're being called by God to serve him in a particular way and you're saying, nah, I'm not interested in that? Are you willing to say, God, whatever you want me to do, I'm gonna do it? Because you've been reminded of the fact that Christ did so much for you. Christian, are you running from God because you're struggling with self-righteousness? Maybe you've gotten to the point where you have forgotten what you've been saved from, and that's impacting the way that you're responding to other people. And that you're kind of patting your own, yourself on the back on how you're living, but you're looking down your nose at everybody else on how they're living when God wants you to be humble before him and say, you know what, because Jesus saved me of my sin, I need to be reaching out to anybody and everybody, no matter how sinful their lifestyle is, and telling them about Christ. Christ.